Uh, hey guys, hope to see you at the financial meeting today. <laughs> Sorry, Grady said today's your final warning for elder submissions. You could, you could say that in a much harsher way, right? It's your final warning, church. This is it. All right, let's take the offering. Ushers, come on down and uh, let me pray as we, uh, as we worship through giving this morning. Uh, God, thanks for your provision, your abundance, and uh, just the goodness of this life. And we give to you this morning in joy and thanksgiving and uh, in the hope that your name will be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to start with Hebrews 4.15 this morning. My name is Matt, by the way, if you didn't know that. <clears throat> All right, Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, when you need help with something, uh, don't you tend to look for help from somebody who knows what they're talking about? I, um, I have a friend, his name's Dan, and Dan is a professional chef, so when I have food-related questions, I give Dan a call uh, because he knows what he's talking about. Uh, my father-in-law, he worked for General Motors for years in marketing and in sales, so if I have a car question, usually my first call is to my father-in-law. I don't call, for instance, my brother, who is very smart. He has his PhD in theoretical physics, so when my car has trouble, I don't call him because uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's been driving around the same crummy Volkswagen for like 15 years. The kid's a mess, um, even though he's extremely intelligent. You know, when we need help... We look for help from people who know, people who are experts or at least are knowledgeable in the subject that we need help with. And similarly, I think when we face trials in our lives, hard situations, whether it's in life or in our faith, we look for people to help us who have walked a similar path to us. This is why recovery groups are so important and um, for instance, uh, because individuals who have worked through addiction and continue to work through addiction can provide perspective and hope because they've been there before. They get it. The best people to help guide us through life's trials and challenges and the trials and challenges to our faith are the people who have been there before because they can speak from experience and from a place of sympathy and empathy, having walked in our shoes. Years ago, I, I was a youth pastor, and when I was a youth pastor, I, one year I took some of our high school group on a short-term mission trip in the summer, and um, we had this situation that happened during this trip that uh, I had to really consider whether or not I was going to send a couple of these students home early from the trip because of something that they did. And, and this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my ministry career, and it's not just because of what the situation that happened, but it's because of the fallout of the situation. Because inevitably, and there was, um, angry, disappointed parents, not with their kids, but with me for sending their kids home. And there was broken trust, broken relationships, a lot of repair that had to be done. It was, it was maybe the worst experience, one of the worst experiences I've gone through. And in that, when I was in that moment of deciding what am I going to do and how am I going to walk forward in this, what's best for our group, what's, what's best uh, moving forward, who did I call? Well, I called my old youth pastor when I was growing up, when I was the knucklehead kid. <laughs> I had him to lean on and give advice and pray and encourage me through that time. We need someone who's been there 
Someone who's walked in our shoes, who knows not only what to do, but what's going on inside of us when we face trials or situations. The anxiety, the fear, the doubt, maybe the hope when we uh, experience these things. So Hebrews 4.15, this is talking about Jesus, this verse we just read. Jesus, our great high priest, and, and he knows He knows what we go through, our humanity, our weaknesses, our temptations, because he's been there. He's able to sympathize, to empathize with us. If you go to the Gospels, there's this odd little story that's uh, recorded for us in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke both talk about it in full. Mark mentions it briefly. The story of Jesus in the desert for 40 days, fasting, he's not eating, and Satan comes and tempts him during these 40 days. And this happens early on in Jesus' ministry career, we'll say. So early, in fact, that he really hasn't done any ministry yet. Right before Jesus goes out into the desert and is tempted, uh, the thing that happens right before it is Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He goes down to the river, John's baptizing people, he dunks him, and uh, the Holy Spirit descends, the The heavens open up and a loud voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. And Jesus goes from this moment, this like, uh, this mind-blowing God voice moment to, he goes right from that and he goes into solitude in the desert. You think if there's a time to kind of start gathering a following, it would be right after the voice of God literally rings out from heaven saying, this is my son, guys, he's here. But no, he, he heads to the desert for a time of fasting. So we're going to read the story from Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus in the desert, fasting, being tempted by Satan. So uh, let's just get into it. Matthew chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We'll stop there. So immediately after being baptized, Jesus goes to the desert. Voice rings out, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. Holy Spirit, it says, leads him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And these are kind of purposeful words, aren't they? The Spirit leads him to be tempted by the devil. These are words of purpose, and that, uh, that seems kind of strange to me that the Father's purpose for Jesus would to be tempted. You'd think, no, we're going to keep Jesus away from all that. We want to keep him pure. We want to keep him good. We're not even going to put that in front of him. Um, but no, God is up to something. And this tells me, the Spirit leading him to be tempted, this tells me that Jesus had to go through this. This is, this is part of the plan for him. There's a purpose for him in being tempted. So God leads Jesus into the desert for 40 days, 40 nights. It says that Jesus fasts. He doesn't eat anything for 40 days. Fasting is and was and still is an important discipline in the Jewish and Christian traditions. Uh, The idea of fasting is to give up traditionally give up eating, give up meals in order to spend more time in prayer and and sort of learn to lean on God in a more profound way. That when you're hungry, 
and you could easily eat and find some food. It's, it's to kind of transcend the bodily need to set your mind on God and allow him to sustain you. And it teaches you to trust and rely on him. And typically fasting would be for a set period of time. Um, you could do it for one full day, you do it for three full days, or maybe even just one meal to spend instead of eating, focusing on prayer and focusing on the Lord. That's kind of traditionally how fasting was approached. And uh, 40 days is a long time to go without eating. 40 days is a long time for anything, I think. But to not eat physically, it's, it's devastating. I had some friends when I was in college who did a 40-day fast, and they were a mess, <laughs> just miserable, skinny and tired and cranky all the time. And Jesus here, not to mention, he's in the wilderness. This is the Judean desert around, um, around uh, Judah there. He's in the elements, in the sun, in the heat, the cold nights, the wind, away from home and away from comfort. And from a purely physical human perspective, Jesus must have been devastated, just physically devastated. And Jesus is fully human, remember. Verse 2, we just read, tells us that Jesus was hungry, which I, <laughs> I think is an understatement, that he was hungry after 40 days. And it's at this point that any human, I think any of us, would be vulnerable to a lot of things. Vulnerable. I know I would be. Uh, last weekend for me and my family was kind of a long weekend. Um, we were helping run a hockey tournament at uh, Letty in Burlington. And it, it wasn't even for our kids' hockey team. It was for an older group. Uh, but my wife is on the association board, so we had to be there to help out. So, you know, I get roped into these things too. So Friday night, we're at the rink helping out and volunteering. I'm, I'm running the penalty box and, you know, running around doing some other things. And, and then uh, Saturday morning, we're back and helping serve food and do some other stuff. And then midday Saturday, my kids have a hockey game in Stowe, so now I'm driving them to Stowe. And then we're back after that game, back at Letty in Burlington for some more, um, for some more volunteering there. And um, not to mention, we also had guests in town last weekend. So we've got people around, we're busy, we're driving all over Vermont, it's it, hockey, just cold in the rink all day, and um, our guests are in town, and Saturday night we were going to have dinner with our guests, who are friends, they're, they're, their son goes to UVM, they were staying with us, and, and we are going to have some other friends over and have dinner, there's going to be like 12 of us, 13 of us in the house. So I get home at like 4 p.m., and I, I'm on dinner prep, and I get home, and I say, okay, it's time, time to do this thing, and I, I get home, and there's dishes, when is there not dishes? You know, so there's dishes, and I, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'll do these dishes now, get them in the dishwasher, we'll cook, we'll eat, we'll make some more dishes, we'll turn it all over, we'll be golden, no problem. Had it all planned out for minimum stress, minimum effort. And um, I, I, I clean the dishes, I get them in the dishwasher, put the soap in, and I push the button, the start button, and uh, it, there's, it, it's not working. <laughs> It's not, there's nothing. There's no beeps. There's no lights. There's no dings. There's, there's just nothing. The thing's dead. And I, you know, no one, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared for this moment. So I, 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 I go check all the things I know I'm supposed to check in the house and, you know, push all the buttons and flip all the switches. And I, I get back, I push the start button and there's nothing. The thing is just dead. And, um, <laughs> oh, what good are you to me, dishwasher? I don't want to wash the dishes. So now I'm frustrated and I'm tired and I'm hungry. It's been a long weekend. Oh, we got fried. I don't want to do the dishes. I really don't want to do the dishes on top of everything else. And Taylor comes in the room and she goes, hey, how can I help? And I don't remember what I said. <laughs> but I got sent to my room. I literally, she looks at me and goes, Matt, 
go upstairs, take a minute. So I, I literally, she sent me to my room. And, um, you know, this is after one day. This is like one day of being a little busy, like with hockey, you know, and uh, I wasn't in the desert. No, I'm, I'm eating right. Like it's, it's, yeah, I can only imagine how vulnerable Jesus would be tired and hungry and, and devastated. And, and in this time, it's during this time that, that the devil comes to him. And verse three calls him the tempter, which I think is so fitting because that's all he's got. That's all he's got. That's all he can do. That's all he's ever been able to do is to tempt, to show us how we can sin. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the first time he shows up, he's a serpent, and it's the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve are there, the first humans. There's, and all he can do is tempt them to eat from the fruit of the tree God said not to eat from. He doesn't attack them. He tempts them. He shows them how they can turn away from God. And he's come to Jesus now to do the same thing, to try to tempt him to sin, to turn him, manipulate him away from following the Father. And his first words that he says here in verse 3, they're so manipulative. He says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. I mean, that's manipulative. If it's really you, if you really have that power, just eat. Turn the stones into bread. Go ahead. You're hungry, eat. Use your power if you can. And Jesus responds in verse 4 to that temptation. It says that Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus answers the, temptation, the tempter's temptation by quoting scripture. He quotes the Bible. Specifically, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which I find interesting. You know, Jesus has been in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. And any beginning Bible student could draw a parallel here between Jesus and ancient Israel. When God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt... Before bringing them to the promised land, they spent 40 years in the desert. Or in the desert, 40 years, 40 days, this is no accident. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, he's gathered all the Israelites before him, and he's reminding them of what God's done for them and what he's called them to. And in verse 3, which Jesus quotes, Moses is reminding the Israelites of how God has provided food for them every day during their time in the desert. Every day, except for the Sabbath day, the people of Israel would wake up in the desert and find all over the ground around them food. They called it manna, food that God had provided for them supernaturally to sustain them through 40 years in the desert. Here's here's the verse Jesus quotes. It says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus quotes these words from Moses, telling the Israelites they can trust God to provide and sustain them. 
That they don't need to rely on themselves to even something as simple as finding food because God has got them covered. And the tempter, for all his shortcomings, knows this. So he tempts Jesus by saying, you're hungry. Stop fasting. Stop relying on God to take care of you. And take care of the issue yourself. Turn these stones into bread. Turn away from God, from trusting him for even your basic needs. And to that, Jesus says, no, God is all I need. But the tempter's not done yet. Let's go to verse five. Attempt number two. Then it says that the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So now the tempter takes him to the highest point in, in Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of Jewish life and religion, to the top of the temple, the highest point in the city. And the highest point of the temple uh, was about 151 feet high. 151 feet. For perspective, um, you know the big Ferris wheel at the expo in the summer? Not the little one, the big one? That's about 150 feet high. So next time you get stuck at the top of that thing, when you're clutching the rails, just look down, and that's about how high Jesus is from the ground right now. 151 feet up. And the tempter says to him, throw yourself down. And this time... He quotes the Bible to Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91. He says, throw yourself off because God says he's going to send his angels to catch you. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. I find this so interesting for for three reasons. First, uh, the devil quoting scripture is just so like ironic. You know, how manipulative can you get guy? Like twisting God's words, trying to use them against him. Second reason I find this interesting is because Jesus jumping off would demonstrate a tremendous amount of faith. He would have to be so sure, right? He's fully human. So sure that he was not going to hit the ground. Now, I'm not really afraid of heights, but I don't prefer them. And even with a bungee cord or a parachute or something, I would not make that jump. How many of you would, would make that jump? He'd have to be so sure God was going to catch him. That takes faith. Faith that God would catch him. And the third reason I find this interesting is Jerusalem, this is a busy city, right in the middle of everything. The highest point. This would get some attention, I think. Remember, Jesus, he's, uh, he's just starting his ministry. And what a better way to make a splash, uh, you know, no pun intended, I guess, jumping, uh, than for, for the Son of God, <laughs> than for the whole city of Jerusalem, where he would later be arrested and executed, by the way, for these people to see angels swooping in and catching him. What a better way to prove, hey, this is who I am, I'm the Son of God. Man, the tempter knows how to manipulate But Jesus answers back again by quoting the Bible again. This time he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
So Deuteronomy 6, this is a couple chapters earlier. Moses speaking to the Israelites, reminding them of what God's done and what he's called them to. And this time, uh, the verse he quotes is speaking about something that happens in Exodus 17, where the Israelites, they're fighting, they're complaining. They're on the verge of rebellion against Moses. They're on the verge of turning back to go back to Egypt. And their grumbling forces God to act. And God didn't like that. He doesn't like when we put him into our box and say, do this, prove yourself. He doesn't owe that to us. He's God. And Jesus' response makes that clear. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Putting God into our box and trying to force his hand is kind of an act of rebellion he's equating it to. Don't put your God, Lord your God to the test. But the tempter has one more trick. This is uh, going to verse 8 through 11. It says that again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I find this last attempt to be both intense and a little funny. It's funny uh, because everything belongs to Jesus anyway. Every city, every tree, every mountain, every stream, every person, it all belongs to him. It's not Satan's to give. It's not anyone's to give because it's his. He's fully God. But this temptation is also the most intense because it all belongs to Jesus through his suffering. Yeah, Jesus was there at the beginning in creation. If you read John chapter 1, it says that nothing was made apart from him. But the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, condescended. He came down. He gave up heaven and his seat there to be like one of us. And it's through his death and resurrection that Jesus then is crowned and exalted. Here's Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 9. It says, we, uh, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's crowned because he suffered death. The cross is before Jesus. He knows this. Death is before Jesus. Rejection and suffering and divine judgment will be poured out on him on the cross. And the tempter says, you can avoid all that. I'll give you this if you worship me. That's all you got to do. Bow down before me. I don't think any victory would be sweeter for Satan than to have the very Son of God bow down to him instead of the Father. His whole purpose is to get people to turn away from God and to follow him instead, to reject God's rule. 
And all his temptations of Jesus here are designed to drive a wedge between the son and the father. And this last attempt, he makes the grand appeal. Avoid suffering and you'll have it all anyway. All you have to do is worship me. But Jesus, he's not buying what this guy's selling. Even hungry and vulnerable, Jesus does not give in to temptation. Away from me, Satan, he says. And again, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6. This time, verse 13. Moses talking to the people still. Telling them, don't worship other gods. Don't turn away from the one true God and worship the gods of the other nations around us. And he quotes Moses again. You know, it was, very, it was easy for the Israelites to turn away from God. They, they did it a lot. <laughs> Satan won those victories. But, but here, 40 days in the desert, matching the 40 years of the Israelites in the desert, Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious over tempter and over temptation. Satan leaves. And the next phase of Jesus' ministry is about to begin in victory. You know, many, many sermons have been given about this passage in Matthew, about the temptation of Jesus. And in many of those sermons, the message is something like how you can defeat and avoid temptation in your life. And, and while I think that's something worth talking about, um, I don't think that's what this passage is about. This passage is not about you and I defeating temptation. This passage is about Jesus. But in being about Jesus, it's indirectly about us. And if that doesn't make sense now, it will in a minute. So remember, God is up to something. He's up to something here. He leads Jesus into the desert on purpose to be tempted by the devil. There's a purpose in this. So what is this purpose for Jesus? And what does this purpose have to do with us? Well, I think the purpose of Jesus' temptation in the desert was to succeed where we fail. Uh, You know, there are two redemption stories wrapped up into this passage. Two redemption stories. The first redemption story is the redemption of Israel. Jesus' 40 days in the desert parallels the 40 years of Israel in the desert. And like I said, while in the desert, Israel failed a tremendous amount. And God miraculously rescued them from Egypt where they were slaves, they were suffering, they were mistreated. They didn't have their own land and their own identity as a people. So God takes them and they they leave and they cross the Red Sea, right? God opens the waters, they walk through on dry land, this amazing miracle. And then when Pharaoh's army comes after them, he crashes the waters on top of them and defeats Pharaoh's army and his people are free to be their own people. And immediately, (laughs) the Israelites start complaining about this. We go to Exodus chapter 16. Here's a few verses uh, starting uh, in verse two. It says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They were slaves. 
They suffered there, and God freed them and leads them, provides for them, leading them to this promised land that can be their own, a land, as he says, flows with milk and honey. But they complain, and they say, put us back in Egypt. We want to go back there. We don't want to be with you. And they do so much worse. They build the golden calf. They, um, they rebel against Moses. They, they uh, worship other gods. They, they're sexually immoral. They kill. They steal. They, uh, they fail. And they fail not only to live under God's law and protection, but they fail to even recognize that God has saved them from suffering and that he is good. They fail. And this breaks God's heart. He loved Israel, and they failed to love him back. In fact, if you go to Exodus chapter 4, God calls the people of Israel, the nation, he says, you are my son. He calls them the son of God, his firstborn son, he says. And God's son, Israel, failed him for 40 years in the desert. But the true son of God the son with whom he is pleased, enters the desert for 40 days of fasting and does not give into temptation. He does not allow the tempter to drive a wedge between him and the father. Jesus is the faithful son who redeems the unfaithfulness of Israel. Jesus is faithful for our unfaithfulness. He is strong for our weakness. He reconciles our rebellions and he succeeds for us. And in Jesus, the faithful son, we become faithful sons and daughters because of his faithfulness. God wants us to come to him. He wants his children to come to him. That's us. And, and he's given us a way to do that through Jesus. You, you don't need to be perfect to come to him because Jesus is perfect for you. And when you give yourself to him, his perfection becomes your perfection in the eyes of God. Because he succeeds for us. And we can come to the Father joyfully because he succeeds where we fail. The other redemption story wrapped up in this story of Jesus in the desert is the redemption of the first human, the redemption of Adam, the first man. The first human, Adam, was supposed to be the true human. He had everything he needed to live a wonderful life in relationship with God. Perfect, joyful, in paradise with him, in the Garden of Eden. And all his descendants, that's us today, would have inherited this wonderful, perfect life from him. But Adam failed. He gave in to the temptation that the tempter set before him. He ate from the fruit, from the one tree he wasn't supposed to. And again, Satan being so manipulative. You can read it in these words here from Genesis 3. Listen to how he tempts Adam and Eve. He says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's twisting God's words against him like he did with Jesus. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. And again, Satan just dripping, this, these words, dripping with manipulation. He said, you will not certainly die, he says to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eat it, because you're going to be like God when you do, and God knows that. And of course, the promises of the tempter never turn out how we hope they will. You'll be like God, you'll know good and evil, he says. Well, yes, it's true. They know good and evil now because they live and experience evil, something they previously hadn't. There's kind of an interesting parallel here in this story with what Jesus goes through in the desert as well. When the tempter puts this temptation before Adam and Eve, there's sort of a three-level, three-tier temptation they face. Here's uh, Genesis 3.6. As uh, Eve is considering what the serpent has just said, it says, The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband which was there, who was there with her, and he ate it. So the fruit, she notices, it's good for food, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And this temptation, it appeals to the flesh, right? The need for food, to eat. It appeals to the eyes. It's, it's pleasing to the eye. It's beautiful. It looks good. And it's good for gaining wisdom. It appeals to our pride, what we can gain. In the New Testament, if you go to 1 John, the letter of 1 John, John talks about temptation in this three-tiered sort of way as well in uh, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but the world. This temptation, flesh, eyes, and pride, sort of the three tiers, as I'm calling them. I think we could boil down most of what, most of the temptations we face, uh, maybe could be boiled down into these three things. The things that would drive a wedge in our relationship with God in, in these three tiers. The desire of our flesh, our need for food, our, our need for drink, the way certain things make us feel physically, sex or drugs or food or whatever it is. Uh, the desire of our eyes as well, second tier. What we see is beautiful. What we have, what, what, what can we gain? What can I own? What can be mine? And pride. Maybe the desire to be seen a certain way, to have power or reputation. We inherit from Adam the same temptations that him and Eve gave into. And we're plagued by them. We want those things, and, and for many of us, when the opportunity comes to fulfill those temptations, we often don't think twice about giving in. And many times that continues to drive a wedge between us and God, I and mean, we fail, just like Adam did. And instead of inheriting this perfect, wonderful, joyful life with God, we've inherited from Adam sin and brokenness which needs to be repaired in us. So Jesus went into the desert and succeeded where Adam failed. The tempter tried to work his old tricks and bring these three temptations before Jesus. You're hungry? Turn these stones into bread. 
It's the desire of the flesh for food. You're God's son, throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. Maybe we could call this pride. To be seen a certain way. To be seen as the son of God being whisked away by the angels. And all these kingdoms, Jesus, they can be yours if you just bow down and worship me instead. Maybe the temptation of the eyes, what he can have, what he can gain, all the kingdoms of the world and the power that comes with it. But what did Jesus do? He succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus is the true man. He's the true Adam. And in him, we have a new inheritance. A restored relationship with our Heavenly Father and an eternity of joy and purpose in Him. He is our great high priest. And through Jesus, our weakness is made strength because He has succeeded where we so often fail. And when we turn to Him, we receive His victory. He is the true Son of God. He's the true Israel. He's the true man, the true Adam. And for us, he is our salvation and hope and our life. You know, Jesus' temptation in the desert is, it's a story of success. It's a story of redemption for all of us who fail. And when we follow him, you take on his success, you take on that redemption, and we receive a new inheritance. No longer the inheritance of brokenness and sin, now the inheritance of joy and purpose and life eternal with our God. Back in the year 1558, it was a long time ago, John Calvin, the reformer, he he gave a sermon in Geneva. And in the sermon, he speaks about the inheritance that we receive in Jesus, the true man, the true son of God, in whom we have victory. And he talks about this inheritance being something that, that can give us hope as we continue to face temptation and as we continue to face trials and as we await the fullness waiting for us in eternity. So here's some of John Calvin's words from that sermon. I hope they encourage you today. He said, we do not have the full enjoyment of it at present. We walk in hope. And we do not see the thing as if it were present, but we see it by faith. Although then the world gives itself liberty to trample us underfoot, as they say. Although our Lord keeps us tried with many temptations, and although he humbles us in such a way that it may seem we are a sheep anointed to the slaughter, that we're continually at death's door, yet we are not destitute of a good remedy. And why seeing that the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, We have something for which to give praise even in the midst of all our temptations. Therefore, we should rejoice, mourn, grieve, give thanks, be content, wait. There is a new inheritance for you in Jesus. An inheritance of victory to face the trials and temptations of your life knowing that you can be strong because the battle is won. And it's an inheritance of eternity, restored to God, perfect life everlasting. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory in the desert. Let's stand and close in prayer, church.
God, it's not lost on me this morning that we are at the beginning of a season called Lent. We are 42 days away from Easter in which we celebrate your victory over death itself, defeating sin and paving the way for us to enter into this new inheritance you have given us. And Lord, that journey started here with you in the desert. That when Satan threw everything he had at you, when you were hungry, Lord Jesus, you were faithful. And you did that for us. To redeem us from our unfaithfulness and to give us your victory. You endured that time in the desert. So Lord, help us in our temptations to hold fast to you, knowing that you are our victory, knowing you are our strength, and give us hope and joy as we continue to live in this world and walk into our inheritance, confident, joyful, and ready to see you face to face. Help us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church. It's great to see you today. We'll see you at the financial meeting, I hope. See you later.